Good morning, everybody. Lovely to see you all. What lovely weather you've got up here as well. It's been really nice. And um, what time is lunch? That's what I need to know. Sorry? 12. So I've got about an hour and a half. Good. Good. Thank you. Thank you. And Dickie, where are you? I've lost you. Dickie, thank you for such a wonderful introduction. I've never been stoned in church before. <laughs> but I was thinking of all those things that I've done for you, and I just, the only thing lacking is your funeral. So, <laughs> <laughs> so if you speak to John Bird, I'm sure if we book up the date now, we can get a discount. <laughs> Who thinks that's a good idea? <laughs> okay. All right. Thank you for um, the privilege of being back with you this morning. And um, I'd like you to turn in your Bibles to 1 Timothy, Paul's letter to 1 Timothy. I hope you've got your Bibles because we're going to be looking at the whole of 1 Timothy uh, very briefly, hopefully anyhow, today. And um, I was at my my home group, the home group I go to, I don't run it, I just go to it, and um, that was 11 days ago, a week last Thursday, and I sat next to a lady, she was 93, 94, very sprightly, very active, been a missionary for many, many years, uh, lectured in Bible college, and I just asked her, how are you? She said, I'm struggling. I said, oh, I'm sorry. I thought that was because her husband had died just a year ago. And her children lived so far away, she was all on her own. And I said, oh, I'm so sorry. She said, yes. She said, I have been so upset by reading about Christian leaders who have fallen away. These people who I put on a pedestal, I really admired. I like to sit at their feet. And now they have rejected the faith. And it has so upset me, really deeply upset me. So I drew her attention to 1 Timothy chapter 4 and verse 1 and showed her that the Apostle Paul wrote in 1 Timothy hey, 4 verse 1, the Spirit clearly says that in later times some will abandon the faith and follow deceiving spirits and things taught by demons. Don't be, well, do be shocked but realize that this was foretold. This would happen. And indeed, not only are we to know that this will happen, and that year after year, the Christian press will be filled with another tragic story, but we've also got to remember that our faith doesn't depend upon these people being good. Our faith depends upon Jesus Christ. Who he is. What he has done. We believe in him. He is the foundation we build upon. But I showed you that verse from 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 1. And it's quite interesting because if you look back to the beginning of 1 Timothy, to chapter 1 and verse 6, Paul talks about having a sincere faith and a good conscience. And he says in verse 6 that some have departed from these. Some have abandoned these. And that's how he begins his letter, looking at some people have abandoned these. And then if you look at the very end of the letter, chapter 6 and verse 21, talking about um, 
the, these people here. He says, verse 21, which some have professed, that's false knowledge, etc., and in sowing, so doing have abandoned, have departed from the faith. So it begins and ends with talking about those who've departed from the faith, those who've abandoned the faith, and right in the middle, it says that in the latter days, people will abandon the faith. This seems to be the overarching theme of 1 Timothy. And so Paul tells us what we have to do. And running through 1 Timothy, and in my Bible, I've, I've highlighted them in blue, all the passages that I could find of which talks about holding to the faith and living a godly life and bringing them both together. What we would talk about, believing and behaving, or the old hymn, trust and obey. Or if you want it, you could have faith and faithfulness. These things holding together to keep us from falling away. So look at chapter 1, verse 5. The goal of this command is love, which comes from a pure heart and a good conscience, because you're doing the right thing, and a sincere faith. Or look at chapter 1 and verse 19, towards the end of the chapter, and he has these the other way around. Not a good conscience and sincere faith, but here it's holding to faith and a good conscience. What you believe and how you behave. It goes on at the end of chapter 2, very end. If they continue in faith, love and holiness. So it's what you believe and how you behave. Chapter 3, verse 9, they must hold the deep truths of the faith with a clear conscience. And it's summarized very neatly at the end of chapter 4. In chapter 4, verse 16, watch your life, that's your behavior, and doctrine, that's what you believe, closely. Do you see how these things, trust and obey, faith and faithfulness, believe and behave, hold them together. In a world where people are abandoning the faith, in a world where people are falling away, where people are, are spiritual casualties, what have we got to do? We have got to make sure that we ourselves hold firmly to the gospel of Jesus Christ and live lives that reflect the life of Jesus Christ. We have to believe the gospel. We are not saved because of the good things we do, but we are saved because God became man lived a righteous life and died in our place upon the cross, dealing with our sin, and then rose again from the dead triumphantly, defeating death, ascended into heaven, King of kings and Lord of lords, uh, from which he will return in glory. And, and we believe in Jesus Christ. He's the Savior. And because we believe in him, we believe what he says is right, and so we try to follow him and imitate him and put into practice what he says. We believe and we live lives that reflect what we believe. We follow Jesus Christ. But having said all that, now I've got to tell you, I don't think that's the main concern of 1 Timothy. The main concern of 1 Timothy is not how you can make sure you don't fall away by believing the gospel and behaving as a follower of Jesus Christ. The main teaching of 1 Timothy is how can we as a church become such a church that we hinder people from falling away. 
that we don't cause casualties, but we stop casualties, right? So Paul is saying we, we, we live in days when people fall away. So how should we behave? Not simply so that we don't fall away as individuals, but so that as a church, we can make sure that others continue to follow Jesus Christ. And I think that's what 1 Timothy is all about. The number of people who tell me they once were keen Christians, but now they're nowhere. And the majority of them don't blame themselves, although they're probably to blame. <laughs> they point the finger at the church and say, these people, those people, that behavior, that legalistic attitude or whatever, and they were driven away. Now, we know of missionaries who've been driven from the mission field. When I lived in Chesterfield, I lived in the Mans, just over there, and I remember once doing door-to-door -door work around the area, and in the four different corners of Chesterfield, I bumped into people who were once in full-time Christian ministry who were absolutely nowhere spiritually, and they all blamed people in the church who just made Christianity so painful for them, they abandoned the faith. And I think that 1 Timothy is telling us how we can make sure we're a church that doesn't do that, but quite the opposite. So first of all, chapter 1, verse 18, right? So we've had the introduction. Now in chapter 1, verse 18, all the way through to the end of chapter 3, Paul tells us to make sure we have lovely ministries. And I've done a picture of a beautiful garden because I think the church should be like a beautiful garden. And in a beautiful garden, you have lots of different flower beds. So you've got your flower bed, you've got your flower bed, you've got your flower bed, you've got your flower bed. And we make sure the whole garden is beautiful. You know what it's like when you are walking along the road and you see a beautiful garden. You stop and have a look at it, don't you? You like to smell the flowers. You like to look at them. My brother told me that he caught two old ladies walking in his garden. And he said, oh, what are you doing? Oh, they said it was so nice. We just had to come in and have a look. You know, no one said that about my garden. <laughs> but, you know, you like that, don't you? And the church should be like that, that people just say, I want what they've got. It's so beautiful. I can't ignore it. I've got to find out. What makes them tick? What makes them like they are? So Paul begins this section here in 118 by warning us about those who make shipwreck of their lives. Here in verses 18 to 20 of chapter 1, there are always those people who will fall away, those who will make shipwreck of their lives. Now, when we think of shipwreck, we think of Titanic, don't we? Yeah. The Apostle Paul didn't think of the Titanic. Right? I can assure you of that. All right? But he tells us he was shipwrecked three times, and then at the end of Acts, we're told about the fourth shipwreck he went through. So I can imagine when he talked about people making shipwreck of the faith, he was thinking about some of his shipwrecks. And the interesting thing is, you notice he survived all four shipwrecks. When believers make shipwreck of their faith. They don't lose their salvation. Thankfully, they don't destroy their souls because God holds them safe. But they do make a wreck of everything. 
And there are people in Chesterfield today who have made a wreck of everything. They once ran well, but they have made shipwreck. And it hasn't only affected them, it's affected their family, it's affected their friends, it's affected their colleagues, it's affected the church. It has been destructive. And Paul talks about those who make shipwreck of their faith there at the end of chapter 1. And so, in chapter 2, he gives us instruction to the different groups in the church. In chapter 2 and verse 2, he talks about all of us. He says that we should pray for kings and all those in authority, listen, that we may live peaceful and quiet lives in all godliness and holiness. All of us have to be praying for that. And then he moves on, chapter 2, verse 8. Men, therefore I want the men to everywhere to pray, lifting up holy hands without anger or disputing. No anger or disputing. Then the women, chapter 2, verse 11. A woman should learn in quietness. And then chapter 3, verse 3, leaders. Leaders, not given to drunkenness, not violent, but gentle, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money. Can you see a theme flowing through this? It's one of quietness, of peace, of not anger, not disputing. Right? It, but but we, to be peacemakers, not peace destroyers. And for Paul, the word peace meant so much because he was a Jew who was brought up speaking Hebrew where the greeting was shalom and the hope was the shalom of heaven. And he says to the Christians, Look, be people of peace, be people of shalom, be people of heaven. There was a dear old man at Lansdowne. He's in heaven, he's in glory now. But he used to say to me every Sunday, he'd say, oh, I love coming to here on Sundays. He says, for me, every Sunday is a foretaste of heaven. I thought that's wonderful for him. <laughs> I didn't tell him what coming to here was for me every Sunday. <laughs> um, but, but it's wonderful, isn't it? When there's such love and peace and joy and fellowship, that it's a foretaste of heaven. So all the different groups have to be making sure that we are people of peace. Now, it's impossible to live at peace with everybody all the time because some people won't be at peace. They are for war. But as far as we can, we should make sure that every single one of us is doing everything we can to make sure that we are people of peace, creating peace and shalom in the church here. So it's a good time, isn't it, to stop and examine ourselves. How am I doing? How are you doing about being a peacemaker, a follower of the Prince of Peace in this church? And then the conclusion is there in chapter 3, verses 14 to 16. Look at verse 15. If I am delayed, you will know how people ought to conduct themselves in God's household which is the church of the living God, the pillar and foundation of the truth. This is how we are to conduct ourselves in the church that is the foundation and pillar that holds up the gospel of Jesus Christ. So there we are. That's the first half of the letter. We're doing well. Got, still got some time to do the second half of the letter now. We've got to have lovely ministries. What do we have second? Secondly, have 
lovely relationships. This is chapter 4, verse 1, all the way through to chapter 2, chapter 6, verse 2. And I've got here a picture of an orchestra. Because you know what it's like when you... I don't know whether you know what it's like, but if you ever go to hear an orchestra play, first of all, one or two musicians come in and they take their seats and they uh, blow their trumpet or whatever. And then by about 10 minutes or so before the uh, show is to start, all the orchestra is there, and they're all blowing noises, and they're all out of tune with each other, and they're all doing different things, and it's a cacophony, isn't it? Yeah, nothing like our music group this morning. All right. Then what happens is the conductor comes along and gets someone to play an A, and they all get in tune with each other. And then they all get the same piece of music out. And then they all watch the conductor and they all play in time. So they're in tune with each other. They're playing the same piece of music together. They're in time. They're all following the great conductor. And I think this is a picture of what we should be like in our relationships at the church. We follow the great conductor, Jesus Christ. We're all in tune with each other, and we're all following the same script. And we should have wonderful relationships with each other. That's what we should have. But Paul begins, as he began the first section of 1 Timothy, here he begins the second section, chapter 4, verses 1 to 5, by warning us about those who fall away and cause havoc by what they teach. Having given the warning about these false teachers again, he moves in chapter 4, verse 6, to chapter 6, verse 2, to give instructions about different relationships in the church. He begins with a whole long section about Timothy as the church leader in chapter 4, verses 6 to 16, where he tells Timothy two things. He says in verses 6 to 10, teach well, and in verses 11 to 16, Live well. (laughs) Faith and faithfulness. Belief and behavior. Trust and obey. And he says to Timothy, do this. And he tells him why there in verse 12. He says, set an example. Timothy, as a leader, you've got to set an example. This is what everybody should be like. Faith and faithfulness. And then he goes and talks to all the different groups in the church. So um, chapter 5, look at it, verse 1. Do not rebuke an older man harshly. Um, Middle of the end of verse 1. Treat younger men as brothers. Verse 2. Older women as mothers. Verse 2. Younger women as sisters with absolute purity. He's making sure we're all playing from the same (laughs) script. We're all living in the right relationship with each other. And then he goes on and has a long section from chapter 5, verse 3 to verse 15 about the needy, how we relate well to those who are utterly destitute and those who are not absolutely destitute. And then from verse uh, uh, 17 to the end of chapter 6, he talks about how we relate to leaders. And then chapter 6, verses 1 and 2, he even talks to slaves. So it doesn't matter whether you're a leader in the church or whether you're a slave at the bottom of the pecking order in the world. He says, 
We've got to live in a loving relationship with each other. We're all followers of Jesus Christ. We're all playing gospel music. We've all got to be in time with each other. About three weeks ago, I was talking to a guy. I've spoken to him regularly. We bump into each other at work sometimes. And uh, he, he was a leader in his church. He was a lay preacher. And he said to me, I've got to leave. Got to leave the church. He says there are people there who've got into positions of power and they're creating so much pain. He says, my wife and I, we've got to leave. And then I spoke to him a couple of weeks later. He says, we've left. I said, well, where are you going to church now? He said, we're not going anywhere. Me and my wife just stay at home and we have a prayer time and a Bible study together on a Sunday morning. And I told him that <laughs> Christian life, we should be in company with each other. We need each other. We should be in fellowship with each other. He said, well, John survived in Patmos on his own. And I said, yeah, but he didn't have a choice about this. And he said to me, he said, look, we've been hurt before. We've been hurt again. Can't bear being hurt a third time. I thought, isn't that tragic? Isn't that terrible? The church should be loving. It should be the place you go to where you know that here are people who are going to put their arms around you and support you and help you and love you and care for you. We should live like Christ. We should be a reflection of Jesus Christ. We're the body of Jesus Christ, aren't we? And you know what Jesus Christ was like? When they hurt him, he absorbed it all. When they sinned against him, he didn't retaliate. But what he did is he endured the pain of their sin and he forgave them. And he poured out love and mercy and grace. They didn't deserve it. <laughs> they, they deserved the opposite. But, but he wasn't being natural. He was being divine. And we are not to be natural, we are to be supernatural by the life of the Spirit. We absorb the hurt. We, we take it in. We absorb, you know, the criticism. I remember my old minister who having been uh, abused, he said, he went like this, it matters that much. You know, in the internal scheme, it matters that much how they treat me. And we've got to be like that. To pour out love to everybody, however they behave towards us. So I come to my final point, which you'll be very pleased to hear. What you won't be so pleased to hear is it's my main point. It's what I, all the rest has been introduction, all right? So we're just about to start. Are you ready? Are you, we've got an hour. I'm told lunch was... <laughs> okay, there will be brief. The conclusion of Paul's letter, chapter 6, verses 2 to 21, is live lovely lives. Don't only be a church that has lovely ministries because all the people are doing their ministries well. Don't only have lovely relationships because we're all getting on well with each other. But let's live lovely lives. Make sure that we reflect the beauty of Jesus individually. And that's what verses 11 to 16 are all about. But as always, Paul begins this section with chapter 6 verses 2 to 5, a warning about false 
teachers. There's always those people who are a bad example. Be warned about them. And then from 6 to 21, he talks about money. And I couldn't understand this. I couldn't get my head around this. He begins in verses 6 to 10 about those who want to be rich and aren't and warns us that the love of money, the lust for wealth, is a terrible thing. It's a root of all kinds of evil. Some people just can't help earning money. They just have such gifts and they do jobs and people just give them lots and lots of money. Some people are born into wealth. They can't help it. But there are some people who have a lust for wealth. And that's destructive. And then, so he talks about those who don't have wealth in verses 6 to 10. And then in verses 17 to 19, he talks about those who do have wealth and tells them not to think they're better than others because they're wealthy, but to be <laughs> rich in good deeds and to be generous. But in the middle of this section on money, he has verses 11 to 16 about how people of God should live. And I thought, why is it in this section of money? And I remembered just last year, Colin Smith, who is minister of a mega church in Chicago, who's actually spoken here, he was talking about all the famous preachers in America who have gone off the rails in the last few years. And he said the one common denominator between them all was they were millionaires. They had made money out of religion. And it had become a terrible snare for them. And they thought they were above criticism. They were above the average, above the norm. And they went off the rails. So I suddenly realized why Paul talks about money. And then in the middle, he tells us how to behave. So we've got there, chapter 6, verse 11. But you... Man of God, now we've got the command here in verses 11 and 12. But you, man of God, flee from all this and pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, endurance, and gentleness. Fight the good fight of the faith. Take hold of the eternal life. So the command is run away, run away from all this, run away from the love of money. Now, you can go to any Christian bookshop, I think, in this country, and you can buy books that tell you if you follow the principles in the book of Proverbs, you'll become a millionaire. It says uh, there are loads of books like this. That if you only follow the teaching of the Bible, you'll become a millionaire because God wants you to be rich. And I thought to myself, I said, isn't it a pity that Jesus didn't follow the principles of Proverbs? What difference it would make if he... I mean, okay, Solomon was the wise man, but he was nothing compared to Jesus. So wasn't Jesus foolish in not following the principles of Proverbs and not becoming wealthy? Indeed, as he said, he had nowhere to lay his head. You see, it shows us how ridiculous the teaching is that says if we follow the teaching of the Old Testament, we'll become millionaires. If we follow the teaching of the Old Testament, it points us to Jesus. And we follow Jesus, who was rich in true riches, godliness, etc. So, flee from all these things. Flee from the love of money. And run after, what does he say? Righteousness, that means doing the right things. Godliness, that means doing things for the glory of God. Faith. 
which means trusting the gospel, love for one another, endurance means keep going, and gentleness. You know, we said be people of peace, that be people of gentle, which is very important because you see what the next word is. He tells us not only to run, but to fight gently. We've got to be people of gentleness who fight the good fight because our weapons are not carnal. They're not worldly. They're not, my, I'm stronger than you, so I'm going to get my will done. No, we, we fight on our knees in prayer. We fight by showing love when people show us hate. We, we love by standing faithfully to the truth when everyone else is abandoning it. And we fight for the faith with spiritual armor and spiritual weapons. We're going to know why we believe and what we believe. And we're going to not only uh, fight, but we're going to, as it were, play tug of war. We're going to take hold of the eternal life. And we're going to hold on to heaven forever. We're never going to let go of these things. That's the command. And then in verses 13 and 14, we move from the command to the charge. He says in verse 13, In the sight of God who gives life to everyone, and of Jesus Christ, who while testifying before Pontius Pilate, Pilate made the good confession, I charge you to keep this command without spot or blame until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ. You see how serious this is. Here's the command. And now he says, I charge you in the sight of God, who created you and everything else, and in the sight of Jesus Christ, who gave the good confession and died for our sins, keep this commandment without spot. That means without a tiny fault and without blame so that no one can criticize you. When my daughter is telling her little boys off, she says to them, she says, look at me, look at me, look at me. She wants their attention. Well, Paul doesn't say, look at me. He says, look to Jesus. Look to God the Father, God the Son. They see you. Look at them. See how important it is. In the sight of God, keep the command. And then, then the, the charge gets intensified, verses 15 and 16. Uh, until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ, verse 15, which God will bring about in his own time. God, the blessed, that means happy, and only, that's unique, only ruler, the king of kings and lord of lords, the sovereign, who alone is immortal, who, that means, who, who is without beginning of days or end of days, who, who is life, and who lives in unapproachable life, light, um, the, the Shekinah glory. Remember the cherubim, cherub, seraphim hiding their faces? whom no one has seen or can see. To him be honor, that's praise from our lips, might, that's strength from our service, forever, all our days. Amen. Do you see how serious this is? This command, the charge to obey it in the sight of God, who is this glorious God. Mahatma Gandhi was in South Africa. He had been greatly influenced by a Christian missionary called E. Stanley Jones. And he wondered whether Christianity wouldn't be the solution to the problems in India. 
And he was seriously thinking about leading India to adopt Christianity. And there was a famous uh, missionary in India called C.H. Andrews, who he saw was preaching at a church in South Africa. And Gandhi said, this is the man I must go and hear preach. I must hear what he says, because he's been doing a good work in India. And so Gandhi went to the church to hear Andrews preach. He gets to the door, and the man at the door looks at his Indian-colored skin and says, I'm afraid you're not allowed in. And Gandhi said, Christianity holds no answer to the problems in India, and went and introduced Buddhism instead of Christianity. How awful, how awful the prejudice to Gandhi. If only he had been different. If only he imitated Jesus Christ, who welcomed the outcast, the stranger, who was a man of peace, who wanted their church to be a foretaste of heaven. The number of times when I have reacted wrongly, may God have mercy upon me. The number of times we have acted wrongly, may God have mercy upon us. And may it stop. And from this moment on, may every single one of us make sure our ministries are lovely, our relationships are lovely, our lives are lovely. Because we follow the King of Kings. And that is serious.